Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're talking a little deer science today with Dr. Mike Chamberlain. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. How about you? I'm doing great. Jacob, how are you doing over there? Doing well, doing well. 
Uh, tagged up now, getting ready for turkey season, it seems like. So. Oh, yeah. Hey, the brain has shifted yeah, just a little pro- bit. Probably, uh, Mike, I'll be honest, probably a lot of our listeners are like, why aren't y'all talking turkeys on this episode with, with Dr. Chamberlain? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, we'll, yeah. we'll have to save that for another episode, potentially. Um, but no, Mike, appreciate you joining us back on the podcast. We had you on about a year ago. Andrew might be able to look up that episode here. We'll look it up in just a little bit. Last time we had you on, uh, talking some GPS uh, collar data. Um, but this time, we've got some other interesting discussions that we want to talk to you about both when it comes to predation, uh, specifically fawn predation, uh, and then also what's going on right now in Arkansas with study you're taking place and working on uh, with CWD and some interesting findings so far there uh, in the data. But, Mike, to kind of kick us off, I I really want to dive into uh, this discussion on fawn predation and uh, where this one study that we had kind of talked about a little bit before hopping on had taken place and, again, how a specific predator Again, I wouldn't have really assumed um, being a, a big factor in this area uh, turned out to kill you know more fawns, specifically more so than coyotes and bobcats in that area. Um, so, Mike, to kind of kick us off, can you talk a little bit about the study and kind of what y'all were searching for and looking for uh, when looking at that, uh, I guess, the fawn recruitment um, in that area of the state? Yeah, we were, we were doing a project in, in kind of northeast Louisiana, and that part of the world if you're not familiar with it it's it's, it's alluvial it's bottomland hardwood um a lot of deer really high deer density in most areas there and what we were we were actually studying a population that had seen some pretty pretty consistent declines in in juveniles in the herd and we we're trying to figure out kind of you know what was going on so we were we were capturing does and fitting them with, with collars and also putting uh, vaginal implant transmitters in them. So basically when the, when the fawn goes through the birth canal, it kicks the transmitter on and it, the transmitter is laying on the ground where the fawns are and you go and you capture the fawns and you, you put these small expandable kind of collars on them and give you a little backdrop for this area. So this is that particular site has an extremely high bear population obviously coyotes are there bobcats are there but it, but there's a lot of black bears in that area of the state and particularly on these properties we were working on and what we ended up finding out which was pretty interesting was that the bears were the primary fallen predator um if you if you looked at the overall survival of fawns it was about the same about 30 percent um which sounds terrible but that's a very common number that, that you see in many areas of the South is about a, a third of your fawns survive. Um, the difference it was in our case that bears were taking about half the fawns that were being killed and the rest were being taken by coyotes and bobcats and it's various other issues, diseases and, you know, birth defects and that type of thing. But it was really interesting that, that bears were that important of a predator and they were, they were mostly taking fawns that were very, very young, first day or two after they were they were born, um, which was interesting. So, you know, the take home was that black bears were the most important predator of fawns in that in that deer herd. Can we talk a little bit about the habitat? Like, what does this area look like? And you know, some of the reasoning why this could be the case. Because um, again, you're talking about this this area, of the state, specifically the property uh, or the properties that y'all are doing the study on. 
uh, had a really high bear density. But what is some of your thoughts on why that's the case, especially them kind of targeting them when they're when they're really young? I mean, you're talking just a few days old uh, compared to you know your bobcats and kites. Kind of seems like to be hitting them a little bit later. Yeah. So this that area of the state is bottomlands, but this particular site it had mature bottomland forest, but it also had a lot of regenerating forest and so kind of envision this really thick uh, trees um briars blackberries i mean you name it and exceptionally good deer habitat but also exceptionally good bear habitat because those regenerating forests at that time were kind of in a successional state where they were it was just chock-a-block full of blackberries and you know, bears were, we think bears were going into those places to forage. And of course, you've got does that are dropping fawns in this pretty thick, you know, area as well. And you put the bear in there foraging on something and they stumble across a fawn, and you know, particularly a newborn fawn, and they're going to kill it. So that's pretty much what the data showed. Um, we did see, you know, fawns were being born in other parts of the area not just these regenerating forests but a lot of the fawn predation was occurring in these kind of early successional areas where you know those were putting the fawns there because they obviously thought there would be a, a good chance of success and in reality those were those are places that bears were hanging out now dr chamberlain tell me if um uh if i stating this incorrectly but kind of draw on a potential correlation between this and what's seen with nest predators with turkeys um i think when we talked to you about this before about nest predators um that especially like coons or something or just kind of opportunistic just kind of you know wandering or you know working their way through some cover and having to come across a nest versus actually searching out nests um First off, is, is that statement correct, and does it seem like the bears are maybe doing the same thing? Like they're just they're happy to wander into it. They're not necessarily hunting for those fawns. Yeah, I mean, yes. In short, yes, it's much more likely that that's that's what they were doing. Um, there is evidence, and, and it makes sense if you think about it. It you know, if you're a predator and you you're using some habitat and you keep encountering prey you know keep using the habitat um and so i mean it there is good evidence in a lot of predators that they do kind of develop a, a search if you will that okay this type of structure is is kind of what i i'm being successful when i hunt places that look like this um now in this case in on this site there were there were hundreds and hundreds of acres of that but you know i mean bears can move and you know they're they've got exceptionally good sense of smell um you know fawns are when they're a day or two old they're you know they have no advantage there so uh and the other thing is you know fawns are you know a lot of people think well the fawn lays there and waits on mom to come back and they don't you know that's not necessarily always true you know those younger fawns will get up and walk around on their own too and and if they're doing that, they're making poor decisions, um, you know, and that sometimes results in, in a predation event. Yeah, it's almost like you're talking about, you know, an animal or animal learning like that search capability that, hey, if they're having success in a habitat, 
for whatever prey they're gonna keep doing it. It's just like a bird dog. A good bird dog, once with yeah. enough bird contacts, kind of knows like, hey, if we're hunting quail or woodcock, whatever, they kind of understand what cover they need to be in. They don't need to be in that wide open field. They need to be, you know, out in that cover with a good crosswind or something. So I can see again like a bear, you know, learning that as well, specifically in that area, and just comes second net or it comes natural to them because you already said there's soft mass there that they're feeding on, and then happen to get a whiff of a you know a fawn laying there or walking through. It's just an, it's an easy meal for them. Um, that that is really surprising. And again, you're talking about like high bear densities. Um, re- in relations, when you're talking high bear densities, you know you have black bears across the southeast. Is this like higher than I'd say normal in other regions of the south, or or is it again like is there been any kind of data done on like the overall bear densities there? Or is it just high for that region of the state? There has been work, and I don't remember what the numbers were. Um, without question, the highest density of bears in the state of Louisiana. For sure. Um, very, very common. As far as compared to other, you know, the thing you'll note with, about, you know, with bears across the south is they, they live in pockets. You know, they, they're not uniform like a lot of other predators. So, um, so I don't really know what the density was relative to some of the other places that have bears. But compared to the remainder of Louisiana, it was by far the highest density. In, in a situation like that, you said that uh, a third of your fawns typically make it, and that held true even in the area with a lot of black bears. Uh, so that is to say that like maybe a, a nearby area that has no black bears, they're still seeing about the same amount of fawns get killed by like coyotes and bobcats. Um, well, why do you think that's the case? Is Could that be like a, like a case of the... Um, what is it called? Like predator swamping where there's so many fawns on the ground at once, they can only basically kill so many of them. Or or why does that percentage stay the same if you have mainly coyotes and bobcats versus a lot of black bears? It's that, it's that, that notion that, you know, if you've got a fairly uh, short, you know, peak kind of fawning period where most of your fawns are hitting the ground at about the same time, then there's only so many that, you know, that predators are going to find during that period when they're super, super vulnerable versus say, you know, when you've got conception dates that are all over the map and you've got fawns hitting the ground, you know, across many, many weeks, then, then you would logically expect to, to see, you know, more of, more of your fawns taken because they're, they're hitting the ground, you know, all across parts of the year. And, and so there's not this super abundance of, of predators on, I'm, I'm sorry, of, of prey on the landscape, you know, at, at one time. So it's, it's that game. Yeah. And then also when you're talking about, you know, black bears, like we're talking about black bears here and this one sample size was, you know, a, a large majority of uh, the predation done by them. But of course, bobcats and coyotes found across the Southeast, everybody's very familiar with them. Um, I want to talk a little bit about their predation style and maybe how they differ from each other, both coyotes and bobcats, you know, coyotes being, um, you know, both, I guess, a visual, but also a scenting uh, kind of predator versus bobcats that are very visual hunters. Um, what, what is your, like your take on that when it comes like the different, uh, again, I guess, uh, predation styles that each of those species have? And also is there certain habitat types or certain areas uh, that lend itself more for a bobcat to be successful or a coyote to be successful in a certain like landscape or habitat situation? Well, I mean, most of, the, you know, it, it really depends on the, 
there's a couple of things there you know from the standpoint of of how these predators are hunting you know you know bears are kind of deliberate they're they're walking along um bears will find super abundant prey so in other words they'll they'll look for something like you know they'll find a prey source and they'll eat it until they're satiated fruits you know something that's super abundant you know a fawn kind of fits that bill if you think about it so you've got this you got this bear that's kind of very deliberate they they don't move fast but they do they can forage quite some distance but once they find a, a an abundant prey source they really kind of hunker down on it which is why you'll often see bears that are foraging in in let's say orchards or crop fields or something they repeatedly come back to the same spot over and over and over until the prey source is gone versus say a you know a bobcat that is they're they're kind of a pounce hunter they sit observe and wait and then and then pounce on their prey or chase it for a short distance because they they don't have an exceptionally good sense of smell but they've got eyes that are located you know in the front of their face and they can see really well so they can detect motion and you know so that's how they hunt and and then you got a, a coyote that's like a you know they they move they they are adapted to move around they have exceptionally good sense of smell they have exceptionally good hearing um because of the the size and location of their ears um and you put all that together and they're designed to move around and detect prey so that's why you you know you see fawns be eaten by bears when they're very young um but then you know once fawns start walking around then you'll start seeing you'll start seeing hey bobcats and coyotes are killing those fawns because they're active and they're moving around and those animals can detect them when you're doing when y'all were like doing a study like this um especially with the expandable collars uh on these fawns what is the process like when you suspect a, a fawn's dead and y'all go in to observe it or you send you know students in to go and observe it what what is that process like the timing wise and how you go about documenting what killed that fawn we're tracking these fawns every you know every few hours so you get a mortality signal so basically the the collar is still and you get a signal saying okay that collar hasn't moved um we go into the location, see what we can find. You know, in a lot of cases, the fawn is is gone, and there's just bits and pieces of it. In some cases, that's partially consumed. So what we'll do is is we'll take DNA swabs. We'll actually uh, we'll swab the collar. We'll swab the fawn at multiple points. If we you know if we recover the carcass, we'll we'll swab the vegetation where it looked like the fawn was killed and consumed. And what we're trying to figure out, you know, is what's there. And sometimes it's very cut and dry. Um, you know, bears, for instance, they'll, they'll typically kill the fawn, stand on the fawn and rip it apart versus say a coyote or a bobcat that will often move it. Um, and they may move it quite some distance, you know, so you have a, a site where it's consumed where it's obvious that it wasn't killed there 
So we're piecing all that together. And sometimes the DNA comes back and it's very, you know, it's clear. It's, it, there's bear DNA here or coyote DNA here and that's it. And sometimes it's more muddied. You know, sometimes we had samples that we got back from that study that were bear. We, we detect bear and bobcat. Um, and in some of those cases, um, some of those scenarios were it looked like a bear killed the, the fawn and a bobcat ended up finding the remains of the fawn after the bear had consumed what they wanted and, and you know, and cashed it, carried it off and cashed it. Um, you know, it, predation is a complex thing, man. It's a, it, when you start trying to interpret it, it gets kind of, it gets kind of dicey. There's a lot going on sometimes. And that's one reason why I was curious on like how y'all confirm or at least try to confirm what killed it. Cause I was curious about that. I didn't know if I didn't know again about the whole DNA swab, but I was just wondering if it was a, you know, it was a visual thing that you can kind of tell, or of course the DNA swab, which, you know, by far is probably gonna be one of your best bets. Have you, did y'all ever find like any like outlying predator, like just a, a random predator that, you know, killed a couple of fawns that you weren't necessarily expecting or just wasn't like a, a common predator in the landscape, especially when you're talking like whether it's avian predators or anything else like that, that uh, y'all documented. Not really, man. I mean, it, it was pretty, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, it, you know, there aren't a lot of things that, that kill fawns, but what is out there that kills them is quite good at it. (laughs) Uh, you know, we lost some fawns to, to things that are, you know, odd, if you will, you know, stillbursts and, uh, infections and that type of thing, but that just kind of goes with the territory. But no, I mean, those three predators were the big, I mean, that was it. it other than the the very odd situation with a, with an infection or something, it was bears, coyotes, and bobcats. Now, one thing I've heard, and of course this has been discussed uh, in detail when it comes to turkeys in nest sites, but I'm also curious if there's been anything looked at for uh, fawns is uh, the effect of wild pigs or hogs in an area. Um, are you aware of any situation where, where it's been documented of, of hogs being a predator when it comes to fawns? I am not. Um, you know, I, I think I think the thing with, you know, most people that know anything about feral pigs know they'll eat they'll eat just about anything. Um, but there's not a tremendous amount of evidence suggesting that they're an important predator of, of, of any game species, really. Um, I think the issue with pigs, which, you know, anybody that's lived around them knows this, it's just, you know, the evidence is just mounting that they have behavioral effects, you know, on, on deer and other species that, you know, whether they're, they're excluding other animals from the space that they're spending most of their time in, whether they're consuming resources that other species can consume, whether they're degrading the environment through, you know, poor water quality and rooting and soil disturbance. And, you know, I think that's where the science lies, which is strong enough. I mean, pigs are a, a nightmare and you, know, you tell students this and they don't really believe you, but that's you know, feral pigs are going to be one of the top five management challenges we have moving forward. There is just a, it's an issue for not just deer, but a a lot of species. Mike, one thing I wanted to ask about is, uh, how bobcats not only affect like younger fawns, but maybe older deer as well. 
Um, the, growing up, it was something that that we never really thought about. Was you know, we always thought of coyotes as being like kind of like the big bad wolf that that was killing all the deer. And uh, later on, like we started seeing like trail camera pictures or videos of like a bobcat like killing a like a full grown deer. Um, yep. What what does that look like? I mean, how how prevalent are bobcats when it comes to deer of different age classes? Because I'm sure they kill a lot of fawns and yearlings, but what about beyond that as well? We don't lose a lot of adults to bobcats. I mean, I've I've seen the same things you have and the trail camera, you know, sequences of bobcats attacking adults and appearing to kill them. Uh, the telemetry data suggests that that's that's not a common occurrence. Um, and if you think about it, it that kind of makes sense. I mean, most, you know, a large bobcat in the deep south is in the mid 20 pound range. I mean, they're not, it's not like they're, you know, a 40 pound animal, at least in the south. So you've got, you know, a, a fairly small predator that's trying to kill a large prey. And obviously coyotes are, are more effective at killing adults. And, and we do see that, you know, we lose adults to coyote predation on a lot of study sites so i'm not i don't i don't i don't think too much of of a bobcat as an adult predator but they certainly are efficient fawn predators and so you kind of you kind of mentioned it there but when it comes to coyotes doing the same thing uh is it fairly common for for like several adult deer and i I don't know let's say like in a herd every year to get killed by coyotes like is that something that that's happening very regularly is it or is it still like a a pretty decent exception no it happens every year i think the uh, there's a lot of factors that would go into you know whether adults are susceptible to being or being taken by coyotes you know nutritional levels and body condition and behavior and habitat i mean there's just so many things that would go into that but um but yeah i mean coyotes are are consistently taking adults and the, the research we, you know, we looked at, at diets of, of coyotes throughout the calendar cycle, like for an entire year. And, and we found that we basically, we looked at the hair inside of their scat and you can measure the diameter of the hair and determine whether you're looking at a, an, an adult or a fawn. And we clearly demonstrated that that adult hair is showing up in coyote scat year round. And it, it was at a fairly consistent level to all obviously higher during the summer, you know, on fawns and, and higher on adults in the fall. when we, we think they were probably encountering hunter killed deer and, and wounded animals, but they were eating, they were eating adults all year. So yes, deer are, deer are an important prey for coyotes in many areas of their range and they they're capable of killing adults in in certain landscapes all year long and that's what the data show yeah that's one thing i was going to ask about is how much of that is is uh them encountering like a hunter kill or, or just even like a gut pile or or anything like that um another thing too and i'm just curious of how this plays out you know from a from a scientific standpoint but you know, you go you go talk to anybody pretty much in the deer woods in gun season, and they're like, you know, hey, if you see a coyote, shoot it. Um, and let's say that you go out and and you shoot like two coyotes every every deer season. Um, what kind of impact might you be having on 
I don't know, I guess the coyote population or, or potential survival of your deer herd. I mean, like it's just some, any given November day, you, you shoot a coyote. Um, are you making any kind of difference or does it kind of statistically just wash out? No, you're having no effect. What the research on coyotes has shown is that about a third of the population are transients. So in other words, for every 10 coyotes out there, at least three of them are not residents. They're not staying. They don't maintain a home range. They're not staying there all the time. So if you encountered, you know, coyotes on your deer lease or your property, there's a good chance that some of the ones you encounter weren't there yesterday to begin with. Um, the other thing that the research has clearly shown is that when you remove coyotes, residents, so think about, you know, these breeders that are adults that are maintaining a home range and you kill one of those, there's going to be a transient that comes in and fills that territory. It's, it's days, it's not months. So, um, so you've got these, you've got these transients that are moving around all the time and suddenly, you know, you, you take out a, a breeding pair member and within a week or two at most that he or she's been replaced by a transient that comes in, takes over that territory and resumes acting like the previous coyote. So, um, you know, that that's just kind of what you see with coyotes. Coyotes are really a challenge because they do backfill, if you will, so quickly versus a, a species like a bobcat. You know, bobcats use a land tenure system and what that means is, you know, you'll have a you'll have a bobcat, a female that uses a range of a certain size. And if you remove her, you you typically will see another female that will come in and occupy that exact same range, like use the exact same areas as the previous female. Um, and, and bobcats reproduce really slowly. So versus a coyote that pumps a litter out every year, you know, bobcats don't do that. So you, you can go into an area and, and do a really good job at removing bobcats and you're going to see the effects carry over a little longer versus, say, coyotes or raccoons that are really prolific. Um, they, they backfill really fast. So, you know, trying to trap and remove coyotes and uh, months in advance, you know, of your fawning period, that, that's, that's not the recipe for success. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. 
And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at. Uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50 yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. We like to talk about, you know, habitat management and stuff on this podcast from time to time. But the, I mean, the reality is that a lot of us don't really have any kind of opportunity to manage any habitat whatsoever. And, and we've had conversations on here before about how really the best way to make sure a lot of your fawns are going to survive is to have really good habitat um, but you know, I can't go out to my Westervelt club with a chainsaw and start you know, knocking over trees and, and creating any kind of habitat because I don't own the land and same thing with a lot of public lands, uh, across the Southeast. So if somebody was wanting to make a difference, it, it seems like predator management is the most attainable way for most people to, to try to make a difference in their neck of the woods. So if they were wanting to do that, what would be the most effective way for them to get in the game and, and hopefully make a difference? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And and a lot of people can't, they can't control habitat at any appreciable spatial scale. And I'm actually, it's ironic you asked me that I'm actually writing a social media post about this right now. But, you know, the thing with trapping that I, that I tell people is, well, first of all, if, if you have any interest in trapping whatsoever, give it a try. Um, you know, we don't have near the ranks of trappers that we had decades ago. Trapping is a is rewarding. It gets you out at a at a time of year when you know if you're like right now, you know we're in the midst of our legal trapping seasons for for fur bears here in Georgia. And, um, you know there's not a lot going on right now. Deer seasons have ended, and turkey season hasn't here, and the weather sucks, and fish aren't biting yet really, and you know get out there and enjoy it. Um, trapping teaches you an attention to detail and it teaches you skills that you're not going to get otherwise. Uh, it forces you to really pay attention to sign and it's in, it's fun. It's enjoyable. And when you're successful at it, it's really a lot of fun. I, I trapped for many, many years. I just don't have time anymore or I'd still be doing it because I really enjoyed it. You just have to be realistic in your expectations. You know, if you're if you're going to go on to a, a fairly small piece of property and, and trap a coyote or two or a bobcat and a raccoon or what, whatever it is, then you just have to temper your expectations for the consequences of that of that action. But if you you know if you're in a situation where you can you can trap a fairly large acreage, think you know deer home range size or more. Um, 
and you and you've got the capability to go in and and be extensive and that's what the research has shown to be most effective trapping you need to be intensive and extensive and what that means is try to target as many predator species as you can so in this case you know let's let's say you're in a system where you've got bobcats and coyotes or your two biggies you know try to target both species try to try to be as repeated as you can in other words don't just trap once try to trap multiple times maybe come back each year uh, a few times in a single year and try to do it as close to your you know your reproductive season of whatever species you're interested in as you can and that's where we get into a challenge with with deer managers is you know and, and a lot like on our study site in louisiana fawning was in was in july and august you know so it, it, it's just not legal and practical to you know to go in and target some of these predators so would i discourage someone from doing it in in february absolutely not i mean if you have any again if you have any interest in doing it give it a try and i think one thing i've seen with trappers is if you can find a good trapper they're willing to teach you they're willing to show you tricks of the trade because they're they they have such a passion for what they're doing and and without exception some of the very best outdoors people i've ever met were trappers they they have an attention to detail that that you just don't get unless you're trying to put an animal's foot in a one and a half inch circle or you know trying to get an animal to to change its behavior that that's that's good stuff man it, it really it's it's a lot of fun yeah i i used to trap too uh back actually when i was in high school i actually trapped a local wildlife management area where i lived because it was the only place i had to go and uh i i I missed the rut for like two or three years in a row because i was trapping so hard um and it that the rut in that area was you know mid-december and january and uh, i was just spending my time trapping and uh i don't i don't regret it at all i mean it was fun and exactly like you said i learned so much specifically about reading tracks um that I just would have never gotten otherwise, and it was it was a fun and rewarding experience, and and it's fun to get the the hides too. Um, yeah, I like I learned how to tan my own hides, like that was fun. I mean, it was just it was a really fun thing, especially for me being you know sixteen and seventeen years old. Uh, that was a really awesome thing for me to get into. But even you know if like anybody who's you know a grown man who's got the time to do it wants to go out and do it, you can get those those hides tan fairly cheaply um if you mm-hmm, if yeah. you go skin it i mean go out, go out and trap you some stuff man you can have your wife some you can like make her some mittens or something i don't know <laughs> make her a hat you know that'd be a good valentine's day gift but anyways depends on the not wife. to my wife yeah yeah depends on the wife <laughs> depends on the wife is that right mike <laughs> <laughs> but either way um so yeah I, I i love trapping man it's fun um and you're definitely right a lot of guys who are big trappers we know some here locally they're they're more than willing to teach you. Um, so, so to kind of sum up that though, the really, if you're wanting to make a difference for your deer or your turkeys, you need to really focus your efforts around whenever, uh, whenever fawns are hitting the ground, first of all, for deer. And then for turkeys, I'm assuming probably whenever the hens really go to nest and then when they're, when the eggs are hatching and, and probably about a month thereafter. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, that's, that's not really practical in in most areas uh, just because of when the 
your trapping seasons are scheduled. But but I, I, I tend to tell people, you know, again, it's more difficult for deer, particularly in the, in the south. But, you know, for turkeys, you, you want to hit try to hit your predators if you're going to trap as, as soon, you know, as early as you can right before nesting season. In other words, January is one thing. Uh, February 15th is another. I mean, the difference in catching a, a handful of animals or, or, or really catching a lot of animals on, you know, January the 1st versus February 15th, there's a difference there because, you know, February 15th, you're a, you're a month before you're, you start getting a lot of breeding activity occurring. And at least in, in most of the deep south, you know, our, our peaks in nest incubation are about the middle of April. So you've got nest hitting the ground, you know, around the 1st of April. And you're, you start removing, you know, nest predators at the end of February. That's going to be proportionally more impactful than removing the same number of animals the first January because you're you're just allowing animals to have time to, to backfill those territories that you're vacating by removing those those animals. Yeah, and trapping's one of those things that, you know, if you haven't done it, it's it's interesting to kind of uh attempt it and get into it. And probably the easiest thing to do is uh just when you're talking about trapping, like the easy thing to trap, at least for me in the past, get a couple dog proof traps and trap some coons like as easy as it can get. Uh, and then maybe try to find somebody or watch some videos on how to trap, you know, your larger predators, like your bobcats and your, and your coyotes, which is, you know, those sets are a lot more, um, take a lot more skill, but again, I guess you can kind of work your way through some failures. And I'm sure Andrew has some stuff to talk about that in the Friday breakdown for this episode. Uh, but to learn how to, you know, be consistent with it. Um, now, Mike, is there anything else that we're missing? Uh, when we're talking about like, you know, this predation, uh, fawning recruitment, stuff like that. Uh, on this topic, uh, because if there is, we can kind of dive into it. If not, I do want to talk about what y'all are studying in uh, in Arkansas with the CWD. Yeah, yeah, let's go there. Okay, sure. perfect. So you and me have talked about, or we talked about this a while back, probably a year ago, uh, or, or close to it, when you were talking about, you know, some of the data and some of the things that y'all are studying up in the kind of that northwest region of the state of Arkansas. And uh, some interesting data. Uh, so real quick, to kind of give you know listeners an idea of what's going on in Arkansas specifically in this CWD zone, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the prevalence of it in that area and just some overall data points from like the deer herd before we kind of get into some specifics here on, on fawns? Yeah, so if you're, if you're not familiar with, you know, the northwest Arkansas area, there's a, there's a, a large area now that uh, CWD was detected back handful of years ago. Uh, the state agency started collecting animals and, and doing testing and realized that the prevalence rate was quite high, well over 25% in certain areas. Um, it appears that the, the herd, you know, has been struggling in many ways. Um, if you've ever been up there, you know, you know, Northwest Arkansas is very remote. It, it's rugged. Um, there, there's not a tremendously high deer density uniformly across the landscape, but there are areas where there, the deer density is quite high. Um, so the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission kind of reached out, uh, sought some proposals for research. We submitted one. They, they decided to fund it. And 
what we've what we've done is we we're now in our third field season where we're, we're capturing adults we're putting gps collars on them we are capturing fawns using you know kind of the same approach we we kind of talked about previously uh we're using grids of cameras to estimate abundance we're, we're doing obviously doing cwd testing at the time of capture uh again at the time of death if we recover dead animals whether it's adults or fawns and you know we tracked well over 100 animals we're, we're gosh i guess we're up now one 140 ish something like that um and the results have been have been frankly pretty sobering. Um, we've seen that if you if you look kind of across all the animals we've put our hands on, about a third of them are CWD positive, and that's a really high prevalence rate. And it doesn't seem to vary by sex. It, bucks and does both are around that thirty percent. Uh, it doesn't seem to vary. It does a little bit spatially. There are kind of hot spots on the landscape where the prevalence is higher than that. But um, one thing we are seeing, and, and this study is pretty cool, that we're we're collaring these animals and we're testing them with a rectal biopsy, and then and in many cases they're they're negative or they're presumed negative. In other words, the test doesn't find presence of cwd but then we're tracking these deer through several years and we've already had instances where animals that were presumed negative have become positive so we're we're able to monitor their behavior you know as the disease progresses and to see you know what are the signs that this animal is is becoming you know impaired what are the how does their behavior change their movements how does their interactions with other deer change how could they be spreading you know the disease in the environment or to each other um so that's been really interesting but the the prevalence rate is sobering and the other thing that has been pretty surprising and we're, we're not exactly sure what's going on is we you know if you catch fawns usually by around two to three weeks if they're going to die they're, they're dead you know once they get up and they're moving around with mom and they're super mobile they, they're they're fairly safe you know they can still be killed but they're fairly safe so their survival increases pretty dramatically after a few weeks um and you don't you don't lose a lot of animals in the fall you you know those fawns that make it to say three or four weeks old, they live until until the following winter. And in this population, we're not seeing that. We're seeing, we're losing fawns that are 30 days old, 40 days old, 60 days old, 90 days old. And the, the result is the probability that a fawn, you know, makes it until, say, right now is, is, is less than 20%. Um, but if you go back and look at the initial, like the initial snapshot that we're seeing, like what's the fawn survival rate? If you, if you look out, say, you know, two months or so, you, you'll say, oh, it's about 35%. So basically just like the rest of the deer herds in the South with, with some exceptions. But then if you start factoring in, 
you know, we're continually losing these fawns during the summer and the fall, your your probability gets down below 20% that they're going to survive until the winter trapping season, which is right now. And that's, that's a call that's, that's concerning. Um, because it suggests that, you know, there could be some other things going on in, in these herds that have really high prevalence. You know, there's, there's emerging evidence showing, you know, in utero transmission can occur. So you've got a, a dam that could, that could transfer CWD to their fawns. You know, could these fawns be born to dams that are positive or not yet showing, you know, symptoms, but there's something there. There's some underlying difference. Do these fawns behave differently? Are they, are, are they, um, you know, more susceptible to, to being risky? We don't know. It just, the data suggests that there's something going on here that CWD could be affecting reproduction in, in ways outside of just these direct effects that maybe there's some indirect issues here. We just need more data and we need more time. And we, I mean, this study is ongoing, so we'll, we'll hopefully have some answers. Yeah, and there, there's a lot here to talk about. One that I wanted to have you clarify, earlier when we were talking about the predation, like with the black bears and coyotes and bobcats, you are saying, you know, survival rates, you know, roughly a third of your, you know, a third of your population, you know, 30 to 35% of your fawns are going are gonna to survive. That number, it, when you say survive, are you talking about survive until like a year old? And what is that, or how does that differ based, based off like where you're talking about now in Arkansas? where you're seeing, like, yeah, that survivability rating is the same for that 60-day period, but you're continuing to lose more and more and more to the point that you're getting down to roughly 20% survival by this time of the year. It's just, you know, so basically these collars, you know, these collars don't last forever on these fawns. They they have a shelf life. So, you know, you're tracking them kind of manually, unlike, say, a GPS that's it's downloading locations and you're being sent the location. So we're tracking these fawns in the field. Um, you know, what's going on. I, I again, I, I just don't know, but, um, you know, most studies, if you look at fawn survival, if you will, if, when they plot out the time of death, like the day of death, if you will, almost all of the fawns that are dying are dying from like day one to like day 10, you know, or day one to day 15 or something. And, and there's this huge pulse of deaths day one, two, three, four, it, you know, it, kind of like what we've talked about. You've got these fawns that are, that are laying there and they're susceptible. And, and once they get up and start moving around, they're also susceptible, but every day that they get older, they get more mobile you know, they're faster, they're more fleet of foot, and they can, they can avoid predation. Um, and we're just wondering in this, in this particular study, could the, could the presence of CWD at the rate that we're seeing it, which is quite high, could it be impacting how these younger deer are, are behaving? Could it be impacting their physiology? We just, we don't know. But there's there's definitely enough smoke there to to cause you to kind of scratch your head. Um, so we'll just see what the you know we've got two more field seasons, so we'll see what the data show us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you're talking about you know you're having fawns continue to die throughout the fall and even into the winter, 
Um, is that like a, a mix of different types of death as in some being, you know, predation, some just being natural cause of death disease or something? I mean, is it mostly predation or is there any other like outlying factors that's, you know, that cause of death? I'm mean, talking, of course, CWD potentially being a factor here, but is there a certain way that those fawns are dying that you're having, especially throughout the fall and into the winter? It's mostly predation. Yeah. And, and we do see, we see this in general in this, in this herd, we see comorbid causes. So for instance, we'll, you know, we'll have an animal that's shot by a hunter and it's CWD positive. And then we'll have a, we'll have a animal that gets killed by a, a coyote or uh, dies to, you know, during the polar vortex, for instance, you know, last year where it was just so super cold you have a deer that that appears to have laid down and died and from winter weather in reality yes that's true but she also had a severe bacterial infection so you kind of have these in some of these cases you have several things that are ongoing that you know could affect the animal's behavior and ultimately result in it being more susceptible to being killed by a predator if you will yeah uh, yeah absolutely uh that that's super interesting and then um uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, of course, you know, over the next two years, you're all going to find a lot more uh, kind of data points and get a better, you know, overview on what's kind of potentially happening. Uh, but you said also earlier on that it, it seems or it could be that, you know, some of these fawns, especially the ones that, um, you know, just living in this environment, that's you know, a very high uh, prevalency rate of CWD potentially being more risk averse or, again, maybe doing more risky um movements or habitats or doing more risky things that could potentially get them killed specifically by predators, uh, which is something super interesting. I'm guessing that potentially could show up at some point when it comes to just the overall movement of those fawns uh, throughout that time of tracking them. This, I guess, seems like they're covering more ground or or moving around a a lot more than typically you'd see in other populations. Yeah, I mean, we'll just have to see. It it could be. and, And one of the, you know, one of the things that we will be able to look at is, you know, are there certain things that predispose individuals to being more risky? And we, you see this in a lot of prey species. I mean, there's been work with elk. There's been work with, you know, a lot of species. In fact, we're seeing this with turkeys too, that there, there's just some animals that are more risky than others. They, and it's not, at least in some cases, it's not really, you know, illness or disease or whatever. It's just some animals are wired to be more risky in their behaviors. And, and frankly, that can carry some consequences. <laughs> you know, um, in this case, you know, there's a very distinct possibility that, that CWD, even well before the animal starts to, to show symptoms, that these animals could be behaving differently. There, there could be, maybe they're a little more risky. Maybe they're, they're less aware. Maybe they, you know, are more likely to take chances because they're, their systems compromise. We just we just don't know. But we're I mean we're getting the information for sure. Yeah, and that's something that I've I've heard from um, not necessarily other researchers, but specifically like kind of you know some other uh, well not other but um, habitat managers and stuff like that who's in talk with other uh, researchers on the idea that like you said they're being more risk averse and it's that the deer that have CWD um, you know are getting killed by things that probably shouldn't be killing them. 
um, as in, again, like, you know, predation and stuff like that at different ages. Um, has there been any case, and I'm just curious with this when it comes to CWD and kind of what y'all are seeing, um, that, a, like, outlying symptoms, like actual physical symptoms or something that can be seen with some of these deer that have, uh, that's maybe had CWD for an extended period of time that then is either killed by a predator or hit by a car or something like that, or even killed by a hunter. Is there any kind of those outlying symptoms that, visually can be seen or is it one of those things that's again kind of core mo- or uh, a comorbidity that you know they just have uh, the symptoms of cwd um you know through um you know the pre the prions that when they're killed it's just something that kind of pops up as a red flag that hey you know this one you know super hot well we did i mean that's that's why we're doing the work we don't really know yet um i think logically the way i see it there should be some signs that we should be able to tease out from their behavioral data. You know, if we, for instance, I'll give you a scenario. You, you collar an animal and 16 months later, it, you, you pick it up dead and it, it died from CWD. And, um, or it was shot by a hunter and when it was caught, it, tested negative and when it was killed it tested positive okay well now we've got 16 months of data let's go back in retrospect and let's take a close look here you know were there were there things that changed did did he or she begin using less space did they move more move less did they become more erratic i mean the list is long um and that's what we're doing right now well, you know, we we're actually, I say we, it's not me, it's graduate students, but we're, we're collecting those data. And, and yes, the point, at least one of the objectives is to, to provide an assessment of, okay, what happens when these animals start to ch- change their behavior? When does that occur? Um, you know, does it occur six months before they ultimately succumb to the disease? Is it eight months? Is it a year? What does it look like? You know, it, are there ways that you could look at data and predict, okay, that's, you know, that's when the animal started changing its behavior. Well, that was X amount of time before the animal died. Um, or, you know, once they start changing their behavior, are they more, how much more likely are they to encounter a hunter or not, or to be, you know, road killed? Or, I mean, there's just so many scenarios. It just takes catching enough animals and having enough animals that are positive, which unfortunately that study site, we, there's a large percentage of population that is positive. It's just going to take a little bit of time to get the information. Yeah, it sound, sounds like takes you know it's going to take a little bit of time, actually a lot of time probably, but also a lot of money and funding to be able to do that because all all I'm hearing is a ton of man hours and also some specialists to be able to go back and tease out all that data because you're talking about a a very in depth. Uh, timely uh, or very time-consuming method to go back and look at individual deer like that to kind of tease out the data and see is there anything there that's, you know, worth noting. And you're talking about, you know, hundreds of deer that y'all have, uh, you know, collared and, and all the fawns and everything else. There's there's a lot of points there to be able to go back and look through, especially after the data. I'm guessing, is that something once y'all, because uh, I'm not very familiar when it comes to like these research projects and how everything's handled, but once y'all collect all that data, is that something that even after the fact, so three, four years down the road, you know, there'll be individuals kind of looking through that data, con- you know, consecutively, or is it one of those things that once the, the study's done, it's kind of moved on to the next project? I think with a project like this, um, 
you know, back in the day, kind of, I'd say, say 20 years ago when I was young doing this, you would tend to collect data and, and analyze it and move on because there was only so much there. But with the scope and resolution of the data that are being collected in, in a lot of projects now, like this one, where you've got, you know, just from this this one animal that you have your hands on, you have a disease, you have, you know, yes or no, you have GPS data, you have, you know, you may have genetic material, you have all these things and the data becomes so, it's so enormous. There's so much of it that honestly, you can't really do it justice in at that first dive, if you will. So, you know, I have students now that are in my turkey lab that they're looking through data from 10 years ago because there's just so much there that we've just never been able to really get at because, to your point, you have to have so many people and time. And to do that, you have to have money to pay people that are talented, you know, and let them do their job. And and there's so much value in these data sets because they're so comprehensive and they're so fine scale. The resolution is so tight that we can know, I mean, we can see where these animals are moving. We can, we know the consequences. We know whether they live or die. We know whether they have a fawn or not. And it just, yeah, I mean, projects like this, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, there's still people going through portions of this data set, trying to use it to inform management or to help better understand how this disease is affecting deer herds. And one of the last points, Mike, I want to bring up on this episode with you on that is for anyone out there that's saying, oh, this is a waste of time. It's a waste of funding. Like, you, I don't know how much you get on any of these online forums or Facebook groups, but you always have I people. I try not to. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably for the better. <laughs> probably for the better. But you have a lot of people that disagree and are, are really just upset of, like, how different state agencies are spending money in researching CWD. And I think it's a black hole of just a lot of money and even states are making money off uh, just trying to study CWD. Um, saying some of that just from what I've seen comments on what the state's doing in Alabama or what Alabama's doing. Um, so what would be your, I guess, um, not even rebuttal, but your take on when someone says like this is a waste of time, waste of money, they hear in like all this time that's going to have to go into it before we even find anything. What would be your, I guess, way to not simplify, but really just explain the value and why it's important to study something like this and not just let it go and then deal with this in 20 or 30 years when uh, we may have a lot more issues. I'd tell you to drive up to Northwest Arkansas and ask an average deer hunter how their deer seasons have been. Um, You know, this is a, this is a problem that is not going away. And Yes, agencies have been criticized for their approaches and in some cases justifiably criticized for the the routes they've taken to either manage or not for the disease or against the disease. You know, and the bottom line is, um, and, and there's one of the reasons I don't go on to those types of forums like that is because, um, everybody's an expert. And everybody knows everything. And in reality, as scientists, there's there's so much we don't know. 
and we're trying our damnedest to get information as quickly as we can, but it takes time to do work like what we're talking about. And it doesn't matter what the outcome is. It's still not going to be popular. I mean, you, you have this, you have a disease that's a hundred percent fatal. Um, you do not want CWD in your deer herd because your deer hunting is never going to be the same. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. And, and if you don't believe that, just go to areas where CWD has been detected for quite some time and talk to people that have, you know, they, they learn to live with it. It's a, it's an evil that you learn to live with. But if we could study situations where the disease is prevalent like it is in northwest arkansas and we can come up with rigorous data to help other agencies understand what the what's it going to look like 10 years from now 20 years from now then when this pops up in your backwoods the agency will be better prepared whether they spent the money on the research or some other agency did they'll be better prepared to react to it if we don't, if we just stick our head in the sand, then we're never going to be prepared. And, and that's just the rea- that's to me, that's just the reality of, of where we are. And, and, you know, the other thing I would tell people, and, and I, I get it, look, I, I, I understand concerns. I understand criticisms. I get criticized for stuff all the time. It doesn't bother me a bit because I appreciate other people's perspectives, even when I don't want to hear it. But the bottom line is to do this type of work costs money. And I've been involved in like this particular project. I watched a state agency, you know, literally they were scraping the barrel to try to fund this work because it's that important to them because they understand how serious it is and it costs money and things that cost money you know, take money from other thing, other resources, you know, so that's just the way it is. These, these agencies are working under limited budgets and there's only so much money there. So they have to prioritize what they spend it on and where CWD is detected. It becomes a top priority as it should be given the severity of the disease. And I mean, that pulls resources away from other programs. So if, if it were me and you're asking me that question, I want as much information as I can get as quickly as I can get it on this disease because there is no reason this should impact every single state the way it has impacted some states. We just need information to prevent that from happening, and that's why a lot of the research is ongoing. Mike, before I let you go, I've got one last thing I just want to get your thoughts on, or whether you've known about this. I'm sure you probably heard about it. Um, I think it's the University of Wyoming, maybe, uh, some kind of study looking at genetics of populations that's had CWD for a very extended period of time, and it seems like there's something going on with the genetics of those deer uh, potentially being in some of those herds. I think it was talking mule deer, uh, being less uh, less uh, susceptible to CWD. Yep. Uh, yep. do, do, can you talk about that? Do you have, I mean, do you have anything that you can talk about that at all of what's being studied um, or, or what's been found so far with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there does, there does appear to be a genetic link here that, that some herds are just more susceptible to contracting the disease and, uh, and having a higher prevalence rate. And I'll use the the herd in Northwest Arkansas as an example. 
you know, there, there's research showing that 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 population, if you will, there's a that the population in that kind of zone is is like distinct genetically from other populations in the state, and that population appears to be highly susceptible to the disease. And it could it could be partially that if we understand you know the genetic makeup what is it about you know genetically what is it about these herds you know which genotypes which you know are most susceptible to this then we could we could predict um you know where where's the next spot does that make sense like hey if we could get some clarity on which populations seem to be the most resistant versus the most susceptible then that would be a really powerful tool because agencies could then start trying to predict within their own states, hey, where, where what areas are we likely to have a problem in versus not? Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of some ongoing work, but, but the work, the data in Arkansas very clearly show it. But that, that pocket, that population up there in that part of the state is, is very susceptible to the disease. Now, why is that? Not sure. Um, but there definitely does appear to be information suggesting that, not just in that area, but in other herds, like you mentioned in Wyoming. Yeah, that's to me, that's one of the most fascinating things when it comes to CWD is some of that genetic work uh, that I think University of Wyoming is doing, and I'm sure others are doing as well, uh, to kind of you know tease that out of the data again with some of these you know herds that have been able to deal with it better than others. Uh, as in just, you know, there's still a prevalency rate, you know, there's, there's a, uh, you know, there's a rate of those individuals that have it, but it seems to be quite a bit lower than other herds and seems to be, at least from what I had read, that uh, there's no really out, or outlying factors other genetics on why some may be more susceptible to it than others, uh, which, you know, that's, I guess, a little bit more hope, I guess you could say, uh, from a, a whitetail uh, hunter, just a deer hunter in general, and just kind of learning about this, that, you know, there's some stuff that could be learned through the genetics that could potentially help us out in the future or figures out, like you said, you know, where are certain spots that could become hot spots based off the genetics there versus others. And uh, also if there's ever a point in the future that uh, it makes sense to bring deer in from other areas that have that, you know, more resistant genetic uh, trait to be able to deal with that kind of, you know, that, that disease really. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, Mike, listen, we greatly appreciate you joining us for this episode of the podcast. Uh, I know you're an extremely busy man. And again, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day uh, to be able to do this with us. Um, do you have any kind of final thoughts or anything you want to leave us and the listeners with before we wrap up today? No, I mean, I think we covered it. I'd just say, tell people, you know, stay tuned. There's a, you know, if you're interested in, in CWD issues, there's, there's a lot of work ongoing right now. And um, there's going to be a lot of work coming out that, that will interest people and man I, you know as a deer hunter i i just hope I, I i don't have to deal with it in my you know in my hunting areas but but man i it it's a real it's a challenge man it is such a challenge for agencies we're all going to have to be able, you know willing to give a little bit because it's going to take time but we're getting there i mean we're getting there there's there's so much interest in it right now that that agencies are dedicating their resources and and they're dealing with the criticism but they're moving forward and we'll, we'll see what the future holds absolutely now dr chamberlain uh if people are wanting to follow along with you and and kind of keep up with what you got going on uh where can they find you 
Yeah, you can. I mean, you can go to University of Georgia's homepage and search on my name, and you can you can find me there. Um, if you're on social media, you can. If you search on my name on Facebook, you'll you'll find me. If you are on Twitter, or Instagram, if you the handles Wild Turkey Doc, Wild Turkey Doc. Um, I post a lot of content about wild turkeys, not only turkeys, but most of what I post is about turkeys. So if you're interested in that, yeah, check those, those channels out and I'll, I'll be having some other, some other social media stuff that I'm going to announce pretty soon that hopefully will be interesting to people that are, that are interested in land management, turkeys and other species. So we'll, we'll, we'll be dropping that pretty soon and hopefully people will, will enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Chamberlain, we can't thank you enough for coming on, and we thank everybody for listening, and we'll catch y'all on this week's Friday Breakdown edition of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right, giving you a heads up here, so go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.